Welcome, everyone, to the Empire Files podcast. This is Mike Preisner here in studio with Abby Martin. Do you ever feel that when you're watching previews of new movies or you go to the movie theater or rent a movie on Amazon or whatever or watch it on TV that you're being fed a bit of Pentagon propaganda, U.S. military propaganda, or pro-war propaganda? Well, if you got that feeling, you would be right. Not just because uh, Hollywood and the establishment elites who control the culture and, and art that we see are just ideologically aligned with the military and with the Pentagon and are therefore putting out content that represents their worldview as people who are part of the ruling class or aspiring to be part of the ruling class. But the Pentagon, the U.S. military, the U.S. Army in particular, actually are playing a role in writing movies, in uh, providing so-called guidance to them, and things of that nature. Uh, So that's a really fascinating topic that we are going to get into today. Uh, We're talking to Alan McLeod from Mint Press News, who just did a really important piece on this, and he's going to be breaking it all down for us. But before we hear from Alan, I wanted to say that, you know, this is a topic that Abby and I have been interested in for quite some time. Um, And our interest was sparked in this when uh, we realized that a very favorite movie of ours, The Abyss, which is an excellent sci-fi film about uh, aliens, or not exactly aliens, but another advanced life form that lives at the very bottom of the ocean um, that humans make contact with for the first time. Uh, We learned that the ending... Uh, and this is a James Cameron film, the ending was changed. And why was that ending changed? Uh, I'm going to um, tell you the ending. So fast forward about a minute if you don't want to hear what happens at the end of The Abyss. If you haven't seen it, you need to go watch it immediately. But apparently the original ending of the film, uh, the life forms at the bottom of the ocean, once they are discovered by humans and, and make that contact, uh, the end of the movie is that the life forms in the bottom of the ocean create this massive tsunami tidal wave that comes over all the cities on the coast of the world and is about to crash down just destroying all of the cities that people are living in and then the wave just freezes and then it goes back to normal and the whole point is that it is a warning against nuclear weapons. It is the life forms on the bottom of the ocean saying humans have done this terrible thing by creating nuclear weapons and if you don't get rid of them or straighten your act out uh, we're going to like punish you Uh, by just destroying some cities because nuclear weapons are such an abomination. And that ending was changed because you can't have a strong critique of nuclear weapons in the heart of the empire, which uses its nuclear weapons as kind of a main tool for menacing the rest of the world and keeping it uh, under their control. So the ending was changed to be something more just fantastical and cool uh, and not something that is political. And so that, you know, film came out, what, in the 90s, Abby? 89, uh, which was at the height, actually, of the anti-nuclear movement was in the 80s. Um, So, you know, that story always kind of stuck with us as kind of a great tragedy in ways that some cool art and culture is modified to reflect the will of the military establishment. Um, But if uh, that isn't tragic enough, it has only gotten much, much worse since that film was made, which is what we're going to talk about today. Yeah, it's really far-reaching and it really infects all kind of genres and it probably has affected a lot of the pieces that you've seen that you like um, in ways that you just can't even imagine. Not the most obvious kind of masturbatory films that glorify the U.S. military, but it's so much more insidious than that. Alan, thank you so much for joining us on the Empire Files podcast to talk more about this. It's great to be with you. 
So, Alan, you just wrote an article for Mint Press News called How the Pentagon Leaned on Hollywood to Sell the War in Afghanistan. The details came out of a FOIA request acquired by Tom Secker, but were shared with Mint Press. I guess start by explaining the gist of the findings. Like, how extensive is this partnership between Hollywood and the Pentagon? Well, for my PhD, I really got interested in propaganda and how media works. And really, when we talk about the United States, a lot of the times we talk about it, the power of its military. But I actually think the power of Hollywood is actually the strongest and uh, most potent weapon the U.S. has to change opinions around the world. And what I found here essentially was that um, pretty much every big Afghanistan film or TV show uh, of the last 20 years has been uh, rewritten by the national security state um, with the help of uh, movie companies and TV companies who are engaged in this quid pro quo whereby uh, the U.S. Army or various sections of the national security state will provide them with all sorts of technical help or, you know, free extras or the use of military bases or ships or jets or whatever. And in exchange, they basically have complete editorial control over the script. It is a big price to pay. But ultimately, when you're shooting these films, which uh, have to be set in another country, you often need a ton of extras, a lot of military equipment. That sort of thing is difficult to impossible to do on a limited budget, especially if you want things like uh, the latest military vehicles, which only the U.S. government possesses. So, um, yeah, ultimately, what I found was that uh, there is this extremely close relationship between uh, the uh, national security state and Hollywood. These two really rely on each other. Uh, As an example of that, um, I'll give you one uh, idea of this. Um, There is a group called the OCPA. They have three different groups, um, one in Los Angeles, one in Chicago, and one in New York. And that's the office for the army where they uh, do a lot of public affairs. And one of their biggest roles is to um, help uh, the military seem as uh, as friendly as possible and as competent as possible. The OCPA, I found, had, um, had simultaneously been working on dozens of films throughout the 2010s, um, sometimes up to 60 or 70 at a time. Uh, one of them, I think, was most uh, illuminative is uh, Charlie Wilson's War. That originally, the script we found, was uh, a very anti-war film. If you don't know what it's about, it's about a Texas politician, Charlie Wilson, who was really the driving force between, behind uh, Operation Cyclone, which was the arming of the Mujahideen in the 1970s and 1980s. Um, obviously, I think most people know that the Mujahideen, a lot of the characters um, from there ended up in Al-Qaeda and the Taliban. And the film makes this explicit. I mean, the film is actually quite an anti-war film, uh, or at least it was when the first script came in. And the last scene made this absolutely clear. The last scene was set on 9-11-2001, and it was the scene of the planes hitting the World Trade Center and uh, the Pentagon, and Charlie Wilson saying, oh my God. Essentially, they were constantly throughout the film saying that um, the consequence of arming these crazy, psychotic, violent radicals in the Middle East was a massive case of blowback, and that CIA policy had directly led to 9-11. But that entire thing was cut 
um, at the behest of the CIA. And the end scene was changed from that. And it was changed to Charlie Wilson winning some sort of presidential medal of freedom. <laughs> so they turned it from like this clearly anti-war film, which is completely correct and truthful in its assertions. And they turned it into a massive military propaganda fest. They also removed... Um, they removed uh, mentions of the Sabra and Shatila massacres, which were, you know, uh, Israeli-backed forces killing large numbers of uh, Palestinians in Lebanon. They also uh, changed the image of the Russians. Originally, in the first script, um, people talked about the Russians doing terrible atrocities, like teaching the Afghans how to read and write. But in the final movie, Russians were presented as these bloodthirsty monsters who only cared about killing. So... It was turned from an anti-war piece into a pro-war film. And this is an exemplary example of what happens throughout um, throughout the uh, the Hollywood sphere and also on television as well. And this has been going on for decades, but it's really been intensifying in the last 20 years. That's so interesting about Charlie Wilson's war. I've never seen it. And I guess I just assumed, like so many other films, that it was just a pro-war film, <laughs> like just, you know, standard uh, Hollywood, you know, sanitizing all of this. But that is just it's just tragic to think that directors and screenwriters would just like literally just give up their artistic freedom. And the whole villainous, you know, narrative of like the evil Russians and all of that, it just seems like it's still so pervasive. Like I remember seeing Chernobyl, you know, remember how, how insane that was? It was just like... It was cartoonish. I mean, and that was so critically acclaimed. I mean, like, I think it won like a ton of awards or whatever, but it just showed Russian leaders as like maniacal, like suicidal. I don't know. Did you ever see that, Alan? Chernobyl? No, I didn't. Yeah, don't bother. <laughs> it's really <laughs> over the top. To be honest, as a rule, uh, whenever there's a film that has the US military or FBI or CIA in it, I generally think that this has actually been. Uh, they've usually had a significant collaboration with those groups. And so if they have had that, uh, the documents show that the these groups like the military and uh, the national security state, all these three-letter agencies, demand uh, complete editorial control to dot every I and cross every T. So you can tell that it's just going to be pro-war, pro-state propaganda in the first place. So I never bother. <laughs> yeah, you know, um, it's... So when you say, you know, said at the beginning that they... that the Pentagon like rewrites scripts like that's that's a very literal thing so like your example of Charlie Wilson's war you know you you get a green light for a project you have the script that's greenlit <clears throat> um, and then you have uh, the things that you need to do which will include if you're showing war you need tanks you need jets you need soldiers and all of those things and traditionally how that was done is there were like agencies I mean they still exist but um, you know I remember when I got out of the military in 2005 and came to Los Angeles there were a bunch of agencies hitting me up saying if you have uh, military experience you know we will can represent you and then you'll just be extras in all these movies in Hollywood and it was a big thing that that uh, young veterans did coming to LA is that you know they just would get hired contracted out to just be background soldiers in all these films but but you have to imagine renting all the equipment from different agencies that have like, you know, a set 
um, military gear. Um, you know, you have to hire military consultants. Like you can tell when a film doesn't have a military consultant because like the uniforms will be all jacked up and like won't make any sense. The stuff they're wearing on their uniform and everything. If films that are more low budget and can afford that kind of thing. Um, but what you're saying is has happened is that instead of now going to uh, like the Hollywood industry that has you know thousands of ex soldiers on their payroll uh, and has like some old tanks in their garage to use on movie sets. They can just go directly to the army and the army says, we will save you millions of dollars by just giving you real soldiers, real special forces guys that'll work for free. Uh, we'll fly some jets over. We'll let you see some tanks. You will reenact all these battlefield scenes for you for free. As long as you let us uh, make edits to the script to make sure it is fair and accurate about our military, which of course, as you're saying, this is run by the U.S. Army's Office of Public Affairs, so they have a very clear agenda in how they're changing scripts. And you said that sometimes they're working at 70 projects at a time, so that would imply that this is not only just a phenomenon that exists in Hollywood, but now the way business is run in Hollywood. That's exactly right. Movie making is a really expensive business. And if the army can come in and save you five, 10, 20 million dollars, that is a bonanza for these uh, movie companies. It can often mean that they're pretty much guaranteed a profit to begin with, especially because the military will promote uh, these films for them again for free. So, yeah, um, the book National Security Cinema by Tom Secker and Matthew Alford found that um, the um, the military had been involved in 814 Hollywood movies and 1,133 TV shows, the large majority of them in the 21st century. And those were just the documents they were given. So just imagine how many of these that they've actually been working on. And it's quite interesting the extent to what they work on. They even work on TV shows like The Price is Right, subtly inserting people uh, wearing military uniforms into the right places, or they work on really sort of basic um, pop culture like uh, music videos, like from Carrie, uh, Katy Perry's music video, or they do like uh, Twitch gaming uh, streams, or, you know, they've got the whole like sports thing locked up where they've got enormous flags and everybody has to stand up and salute the troops, uh, you know, before a game or at halftime or whatever. And yeah, I linked to the documents. The, the military do say that they do this specifically and only to make sure that they are presented accurately, as you said, that uniforms are correct. But uh, reading the documents, it becomes clear that that is absolutely not the case. And one email from Phil Strub, who is uh, the Department of Defense Chief Hollywood Liaison, we might talk about him later, he made that absolutely clear. He said, while maximizing historical authenticity is our mandate, we share responsibility for the reputations of our SEALs and to their families. So he's making clear that this is actually about perception management of the military. And when you read the documents, there are hundreds and hundreds of pages of them that have been released. The back and forth are really illuminating about how obsequious these uh, TV and movie companies are towards the military, to the point where somebody like Phil Straub actually uh, rewrites and changes scripts and provides example dialogues to the writers of the scripts um, for them to, you know, change, say, yay or nay to. It's really incredible the sort of detail they go into. Like, for instance, um, one of the movies, I think it was 12 Strong, uh, they wanted to have some guys with long hair and tattoos. And, he said, and the military were like, no, we absolutely reject uh, the idea of these guys having tattoos. And they, they actually 
threaten to pull the entire uh, film because of this tiny issue, which kind of shows just how um, all-encompassing their control over what we see and what we hear in our media is. Yeah, it's funny because it's not like it's a democratic effort of like everyone getting together in the writer's room, including Phil Straub, this guy like working for the DOD being like, you know, why don't we do that? Like in a normal writer's room where everyone has a say, including this fucking Yahoo from the army. But really, it's just him. (laughs) <laughs> like he's the one who's just like you know what no <laughs> we're not yeah we're pulling the rug out from the whole production you're gonna lose half a billion dollars um, like it's just absolutely mind-blowing it's- you mentioned the price is right how does how do things like that work i mean are they planting people in military gear in the or like military uniforms in the audience to like or are they players on the show like quickly explain that Well, it could be both of those things. There's all sorts of things. We often see uh, people in military uniform in civilian life or on TV shows, and they're always presented as, you know, heroic figures. There's never any sort of like, you know, sense that these people have done anything wrong. So, yeah, sometimes we do see people, contestants on game shows or perhaps, um, you know, uh, a game show or, or, uh, you know, some sort of pop culture TV show might want to have, uh, an event that's been suggested to them where they go to a military base and that might be the finale of their season or something like that. This happened in Pitch Perfect 3, for instance, which is a, supposed Pitch to be a film 3. about singing. Yeah, it's supposed <laughs> to be a film about singing, but it just turns into this pro-war propaganda fest. It really is incredible. What? And just on, and just on Phil Strub, uh, I will say, like, if you go to his IMDb page, it is incredible, his list of um, credits. I can only think of one person in Hollywood, Steven Spielberg, that has a more impressive list of films he's worked on. Phil Strubb has worked on the Iron Man franchise, the James Bond franchise, Transformers, True Lies, Godzilla, Jurassic Park, um, yeah, uh, I Am Legend, 24, um, Pearl Harbor, Men of Honor, Air Force One, Toy Soldier. It, the list just keeps going and going and going. It is incredible the level of influence he has in Hollywood. And yet, unlike somebody like Spielberg, virtually nobody knows his name. Yeah, I wonder why he hasn't gotten the accolades. Is he in the, <laughs> is he in the military or is he just like a contractor for the military? Well, I think he's uh, very high up in the Department of Defense, so he's not actually, I'm sure he's not firing any guns, but he's been in that role for, I think, almost four decades now. So he is really the um, liaison between the uh, military and Hollywood, essentially. That's fascinating. And I guess just how does this work? I mean, is the U.S. Army, I guess, just notified? Like, I wonder if this is like mandated that they have to be notified that anytime there's a potential show or film that addresses U.S. foreign policy or the military, or is it just like it's the quid pro quo where if they need something from the military, then they have to consult with them? Because it seems like it's even more far reaching than than like depictions of war battles or actual military equipment. Well, let's be clear. You can, if you want, make an anti-war film. But the problem is, is that economically, the chips are stacked against you, as we were talking about. You can, you also can't have any of the cool stuff. If you, There's no way you can like hire jets, mm-hmm. uh, fighter planes or anything uh, 
unless it comes from the US military. I mean, who else has those things? They're not privately available. So you, you can make these things. What generally happens is all of these companies have long, long histories of doing this. So they just send a request off to the OPCA, uh, whichever branch of it, or to the FBI or to the Coast Guard or whomever they want to have help them. And nobody seems to bat an eyelid. This is completely normalized to the point where nobody even seems to think that this is uh, a real problem. There are films that do get rejected for help, and sometimes uh, rather big films do make it through. So one example in the 90s was Crimson Tide, which the military absolutely rejected. If you don't know, it's about uh, a U.S. submarine, and it's all about um, this incident where a foreign power is um, threatening to fire a nuclear missile. And the submarine loses contact with uh, headquarters, but it was told to fire on on the uh, missile site, essentially starting World War III. And Denzel Washington's character intervenes and essentially does a mutiny on board the ship and insists that he that the uh, they don't fire the missile. In the end, that proves to be the correct decision, and he saves the world. But the military was absolutely against this because it did not want to see anyone, you know, any depictions of a mutiny on one of their ships. <laughs> and uh, so ultimately, that's one example, but there aren't actually that many uh, in Hollywood that see this as a problem because these two industries are completely intertwined now. Uh, you know, I found something interesting that uh, might be a little clue here. But anyways, Philip Strub was uh, an officer in the U.S. Navy, and he became the head of the DOD. But they created the Film Liaison Unit in 1989, um, and he led it from then until 2018. But it, that date is interesting because before this podcast, I was thinking about, you know, Abby and I were discussing how um, it was always so bizarre to me how many films and TV shows came out during the height of the Afghanistan and Iraq war that were just like dramatized versions of the Iraq and Afghanistan war um, as they were happening. And, you know, with Vietnam, <clears throat> with World War II, I mean, that really wasn't the case. Uh, you know, it wasn't until a couple years after the Vietnam War ended that you started seeing big Hollywood productions about the war. Um, I, I think that, which makes sense because, like, I think at the time, probably it was like too sensitive, too like offensive to create like monetized, dramatized productions about something that was just so raw and recent for so many millions of American families. So that's why I was kind of surprised and that when the like movies like Hurt Locker coming out the, at the height of the Iraq war, that was just like pro Iraq war propaganda. All the films you mentioned about Afghanistan, I mean, they were coming out as the Afghanistan war was raging. It was just such a weird change in the post 9-11 era that you had uh, these kind of fantastical interpretations of the wars, but the wars were going on and it was almost feeding people into them, like young people seeing these movies and then going and joining the army because they think the movie is really badass. But going back to the, you know, it was... Um, Three years after the Vietnam War ended, that Deer Hunter was made, which is like one of the first really big movies about the Vietnam War. It was, in a lot of ways, an anti-war film, even though it had kind of gross depictions of uh, Vietnamese people. Um, then you had uh, Apocalypse Now come out a couple years later, which was very much an anti-war film. Um, but back to the... Uh, but that was still years after the Vietnam War had ended. Um, but then we, we're looking at this date that I mentioned at the beginning of my little rant is that the film liaison unit was created in 1989. Um, there were two big Hollywood movies about Vietnam that came out just a year or so prior to that. Um, one of them was Full Metal Jacket, and one of 
them was Platoon, two really huge blockbuster films about Vietnam that were just scathing. I mean, they were hard anti-war films. It it really, um, you know, put on record the this disaster and failure and inhumanity of the U.S. war in Vietnam. So I wonder if there's maybe a, a connection between when they decided to create this unit as all these films about Vietnam started coming out uh, that kind of really kind of documented the history correctly. Yeah, most definitely. I mean, if you listen to people in Washington, uh, people in the government, they very often talked about the Vietnam syndrome uh, as if it was some sort of disease. What was this disease? It was a sense in the public that they did not want to go to war because they'd seen some of the horrors of what had been going on in Vietnam, both in the news and also in, um, you know, a pop culture. Like, as you said, a lot of Oliver Stone's movies were uh, strongly anti-Vietnam War. And that was the sort of prevailing sentiment in the 1980s. Americans weren't ready for war. I guess the, the first Iraq war kind of changed that where they really started embedding journalists uh, with the military to make sure that um, journalists were less independent than they were uh, in Vietnam, where some of them started talking about the atrocities the, the US was uh, carrying out. And that was really a, the first true mediated war, I think, uh, the first Iraq war, where all the journalists from the big outlets were forced to be accompanied by uh, American military officers and personnel wherever they went. This was supposedly for their own safety. But in reality, the army and the military more generally had their own opinions of this. But I would say also, um, you know, just things like um, even things like Call of Duty, the franchise and other video games that show wars. These are also being helped out by the army in, in all sorts of ways. And again, it's interesting how, you know, kids will play this. And then they will go online and watch streamers and esports events where the army has official teams. And then sometimes often the army are actually grooming them. A lot of the time these kids are literal children, they're teenagers, and they're using the same sort of tactics that pedophiles use on the Internet to try to groom children, except they're grooming them for joining the military. It's just incredible. Yeah, what was the plot line in Call of Duty? One of them was like the overthrow of Maduro or something like that. Or no, no, no. I'm sorry. It was the yeah, actual when Bush basically just like destroyed that entire road. Remember? And then they blamed it on Russia. The Highway of Death yeah, the highway from of the death. Gulf War. They like rewrote it to where it was like Russia that did it. Yeah, yeah. Where it was the actual war crime, but it was Russia. Do you remember that, Alan? Yeah, that's right. Uh, another Call of Duty. It was Call of Duty Ghosts that had the Venezuelan one. And Venezuela is a big target uh, in, in you know, modern media, whether it's games or TV shows. One example of that I wrote about is uh, Jack Ryan. Yeah. I wrote it for Mint Press. Yeah. It's called, um, I think the article's called The CIA's Jack Ryan Series is Regime Change Propaganda Aimed at Venezuela. And, you know, Jack Ryan is, you know, he gets flown into Caracas and there's this you know, horrible dictator in charge, which has ruined the country and everybody's suffering and starving. U.S. sanctions are never mentioned once, of course. The sanctions, if anybody doesn't know, are estimated to have killed at least 100,000 Venezuelans. And uh, in this series, um, Jack Ryan is supporting a leftist freedom fighter and a human rights campaigner who's supposedly standing up against this dictator. It's absolutely ridiculous that the CIA would support any Latin American leftist. But there you go. That's how the thing is completely uh, you know, turned on its head. And Jack Ryan has an, a hell of a lot of CIA influence. There's a lot of people 
advising writers, informing writers. They often go to camps to meet heads, uh, high up CIA agents. Uh, John Krasinski has many, many times talked about his absolute love for the CIA. He talks about how they're amazingly political and how he owes <laughs> that, them anything and sure. how they care. <laughs> Yeah, they always try and do the right thing. The CIA is very political. Quote. I will give him that. Amazingly apolitical. Apparently. Oh, wait, wait, wait. He said amazingly apolitical? Yes, he said amazingly <laughs> apolitical and that they care about the country in a bigger, oh. more idealistic way. I mean, the bootlicking is just incredible, but that's actually what you have to do to get on in Hollywood because if you do have connections with the national security state, you can parlay they, uh, them into... Uh, top jobs like Angelina Jolie has. It's incredible what she does as well. You know, that film Salt, which is about a female secret agent, she, uh, you know, actually went to CIA headquarters and got all sorts of training from them. And now she has kind of, you know, pivoted from an actress into a politician. You know, she wrote uh, an op-ed with John McCain calling for U.S. intervention abroad. I think it was in Myanmar and a couple of other countries. She interviewed the head of MI6 for Time magazine and, you know, filmed it and talking about how, you know, you know, what can MI6 do to counter Russian propaganda? I mean, at this point, it's very hard to see where Hollywood ends and the national security state begins. Wow. I mean, it's, it's, it's like they're using the films as propaganda, but then also recruiting stars to become surrogates. Um, like Angelina Jolie, like uh, Jim from The Office. What's his name? Because yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, you can tell like the CIA Twitter account only follows like twenty people, and and Jim from The Office is one of them. <laughs> uh, so that yeah, maybe is an indicator of who is like really they're working closely with. Um, this is like I don't think connected in a major way, but just because I've been watching a lot of Sesame Street recently since. Uh, we have a, a little kid. Um, I was it, surprised to learn that Elmo's dad deploys to Iraq in uh, <clears throat> one of the episodes, which is, you, you know, I, I love the character of Elmo's dad. I, I, I never pictured him as, as an Iraq war veteran in the show, but that's another just wherever you look, you see the you see this coming out. Yeah, that's incredible. <laughs> They're even working on kids as young as what one year old or or what? Yeah, yeah. that's incredible. Yep, it's so out in the open as well. Uh, I remember in 2018 on Oscar night, the Department of Defense actually tweeted out and said, "Did you know the Department of Defense works with Hollywood to ensure the military is correctly portrayed in films? Find out how here." And it's like, is this you know this was something that you know it's like a parody of what our enemies might do like the soviet union or what somebody might think north korea does and yet it's happening out in the open and nobody says anything about it yeah exactly i was just gonna say it really does seem like something that we would uh, accuse north korea or china of doing just blatant propaganda films to bolster their government and here we are doing it we're proudly doing it all of the a-list actors are proudly endorsing it and like acting as surrogates for the cia it's quite fascinating yeah yeah i mean ben affleck actually oh god you know constantly talks about the cia and how oh there's a ton of cia agents in hollywood there's a lot of big stars that are cia and he always kind of says it in a sort of tongue-in-cheek way but when you look at his yeah argo. you know back catalog you're like i don't think you are being facetious here no not at all yeah and even even someone like him who has been good has good political moments you know challenging bill maher on islamophobia it's just like on the other hand he's doing just propaganda films like Argo and you know god knows what else he's doing that that's working in concert with these agencies 
A quick comment on just the Vietnam era versus the Iraq war era, uh, post 9-11 era. It's interesting, like, it almost seems like all the Vietnam wars, war films that were cutting critiques of the Vietnam war were done so as like a challenge to, to the mythology of the Vietnam War. But when you're making films in the height of the Iraq War, it's palpable propaganda that is used to construct a narrative real time. And that is a really potent tool because you're not letting like the zeitgeist, the cultural zeitgeist set at a moment in time and like looking back historically at like the outrage and protests that happen around this era. It's like actually you're you're shaping it actively. So it's just really interesting. And then and then another just quick comment is that a lot of these films, even let's say they do have kind of a current of maybe anti-war sentiment, it's usually focused around soldiers instead of like war makers or policy makers. You know, it's like usually maybe a soldier's story of like having PTSD or like like you were saying, Mike, the stop loss film, which even Ryan Phillippe, who was in that film, I guess it was produced by MTV. He basically had to go on an apology tour saying this is not an anti-war film. This is specifically a pro-military film, even though the whole premise was about the stop loss program. But because he was getting uh, basically excoriated for being a part of this. Yeah, if I could, just in case people don't remember that or know what, what that's referring to, it came out in 2008, I think it was, like an MTV, it was a big budget film, it was like $25 million or something, but there is a, uh, for those who don't remember, when the Iraq war went really bad, and the army didn't have enough people, like there literally was not enough people to send to the war in Iraq, and so they implemented this policy called stop loss, where basically everyone who thought they were about to get out of the army was stuck in for several more years, and then sent back on really bad tours in Iraq and, and elsewhere. Uh, well, in Iraq, all around Iraq. Um, Joseph Gordon-Levitt was in it. Channing Tatum was in it. You know, big stars. Um, but the, the film focused on that. It was a bunch of guys and women who were thought they're getting out of the army and got stuck. And so it was like everyone in the army. I mean, I was in the army at that time. Everyone was pissed. Everyone was like, what the hell is going on? And there was like a big, you know, there wasn't a mutiny, but it was like mutiny, edge of mutiny level sentiment in the military. And so this film, of course, captured that zeitgeist. It was like, this is a, a thing. This is a big scandal. And we're going to tell this story. But what Abby just mentioned is that even when something like decent got made that actually did highlight like a very major political crisis in the military and and a pretty major scandal. And there, I remember scenes from that film. It was it did make the army look really bad. Um, but that it actually resulted in like this apology tour, Abby, as you said, that they had to go around and, and argue that it's actually pro-military. You know, this isn't in any way meant to to demean the military or say you shouldn't join or anything like that. Yeah. And on the on all the corporate media outlets, uh, they basically start by challenging him being like, you know, how is this just not another anti-war film? First of all, acting like this is something that's a common occurrence, that there's just a ton of anti-war films and this is just another anti-war film that's just shitting on our country and like putting these people on the defense to basically apologize all over themselves and be like, no, 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 like, it's not like that at all. I mean, instead of being like, this policy is horrible. You know, like the like criticizing the policy that the movie was made on. Instead, it just ended up being like you're apologizing to the U.S. government. <laughs> yeah, and even when uh, when Hollywood does touch on things that kind of maybe didn't go so well, this is such a common refrain that they kind of you know uh, put it in the best possible light. And just in case you know the liberal media will go crazy and you know destroy the war for us. One example of that is a uh, lone survivor, which is. 
the true story of a Navy SEAL team that was discovered and attacked by the Taliban while, while they were trying to con conduct this like, you know, special secret operation to assassinate uh, a Taliban commander. What happened was that um, they flew in in a Chinook, dropped down in the middle of the night, um, but uh, they were immediately, or not immediately, but quite quickly discovered by some local goat herders. And they took them hostage and they had to decide what to do. Would they let them go or would they shoot them and uh, cover their tracks? They assumed that if they let them go, then they would immediately tell everybody in the region and then the entire Taliban would be on their ass, you know, 500 to 1 and they'd all die. So there was this, um, in the book anyway, by Marcus Luttrell, who is, uh, he, he was the lone survivor of this. He talks about how, you know, they had this long back and forth about hiding their bodies, uh, you know, just shooting them in the head, etc. In the end, they decide to let them go. And Luttrell, who is now like this Trump-loving uh, TV host on the Blaze Network, which is Glenn Beck's ultra-conservative uh, group, he talks about how, uh, you know, the reason he let them go is because he knew that the liberal media in the U.S. would sell the troops out and talk about them as terrorists and that he would spend the rest of his life in an Afghan prison or he would just be executed in The Hague, which is absolutely crazy if you know anything about the history of U.S. war crimes and how, you know, the U.S. actually has a policy that they will invade the Netherlands if any American serviceman or official is ever attempted to be put on trial there. The whole thing is a complete farce, though, because um, everybody in the area knew this SEAL team was there. This was actually, really, if you want to look at it properly, this was the story of a completely incompetent and bumbling platoon of people who fly a Chinook into the middle of rural Afghanistan and do this big, uh, you know, glitzy combat drop thing and expect the locals not to notice a freaking massive helicopter coming through. So of course the Taliban knew, the goat herders knew, everybody in the area knew they were there. And so their major war crime of, you know, considering shooting these two kids and a very old man was completely moot to the whole thing. They were going to get slaughtered anyway. And Latrell only survived because, you know, one Afghan took pity on him and like nursed him and hit him. So the whole thing was completely stupid in the whole to begin with. But you know, this thing is being presented in this film, Lone Survivor, as like, you know, this amazing, incredible thing that the US military did. And it was just, oh, it was a little bit unlucky that they got caught. But it couldn't be, you know, further from the truth. And the documents also show that um, uh, the O the OP, no sorry, the OCPA, which is, you know, as we said, the military's a uh, public affairs group, they totally censored the thing and changed it. Luttrell's book and the original script was always banging on about how liberals would, you know, sell out America and, you know, they were absolutely crazy. I read the book and it sounds, honestly, the thing I would compare it to is Anders Breivik's manifesto, you know, that Norwegian far-right shooter. It is absolutely crazy. And just the whole thing is just bloodlust from, you know, from beginning to end. And that was, of course, all cut out and it was just totally sanitized. So even when you're talking about American defeats, somehow they can sort of spin that into a victorious and pro-war message. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, there is a, a really amazing parallel to that. I mean, which is Black Hawk Down. 
And, you know, I've seen Black Hawk Down probably 100 times because in the army, they make you watch it like over and over again. <laughs> like when throughout training, like anytime there's like an hour of downtime, they just put you in front of the TV and put on Black Hawk Down, um, which always struck me as weird because like Lone Survivor, it's a film about a catastrophic military defeat. It's about some completely dumbass officer, some incompetent captain who uh, Captain Steele is his name, uh, real last name. Um, and and it just leads leads everyone on a, just a, a really stupid mission where it just completely blows up in their faces. Half the guys get killed. It's a total disaster. Um, but yet it's tur- somehow turned into a pro-war film that is so revered by the military that they make soldiers in basic training watch it over and over again. I mean, I'm sure there's films that have replaced. I'm sure maybe it's now Lone Survivor that you have to watch 50 times throughout basic training and no longer Black Hawk Down. But like, as long as there's killing, as long as it's like, oh, this is badass. They're killing a bunch of people. And yeah, a bunch of their friends are getting killed, but that's kind of badass too. Um, you know, it kind of fits the mold of what they want to accomplish. But it, but it's so weird that they played Black Hawk Down over and over again, because like when you were watching it, Mike, did any of the fellow army people be like, well, why were we in Somalia? <laughs> like, it's just such a weird place to even justify that the U.S. was there, you know? Yeah, it's always kind of ambiguous, like what they're actually doing, you know, in the it's like they're on this raid to get this guy. But like and then like everyone in the town like wants to kill them. And it's like, well, if everyone literally everyone in this city wants to kill someone wearing an American soldier uniform, like what are, what are you doing there? But yeah, that's always ambiguous in the movie. Like what? what the actual purpose of them being there is, which is almost left ambiguous. I mean, it, it could easily be a critique of the military that film but i mean just like deer i mean like i mentioned deer hunter as being like the first big movie. it's like i remember deer hunter as like something i thought was cool and made me want to join the army but then you watch it now in retrospect and it's like oh no it's just about a guy whose life is completely fucked up from being in vietnam yeah, yeah it's like chris kyle and all of his stuff dude right? i was just gonna say american sniper man i mean that's one of the worst Right? I mean, Jesus Christ. Yeah, I mean, One Survivor was actually changed to make the military look less, you know, bumbling and incompetent. There was actually a scene, which I think was in Luttrell's book as well, where they were on training and, you know, Luttrell screams, blow me fag at somebody and then farts on his face. And that was taken out of the film because, like, you know, obviously the the CPA was thinking, maybe we don't want that, you know, as an image of how the military works. Yeah, and we don't want Chris Chris Kyle like bragging about killing unarmed like quote unquote looters at Hurricane Katrina, or bragging about how he just like like slayed anything that moved, and you know which he claims was like over a hundred people in Iraq, like just was like sniping random kids, like carrying groceries and shit. So I haven't seen the movie. I cannot stomach actually watching it, you especially seen American Sniper. I, I know. <laughs> After the whole fuck Chris Kyle scenario where I got like like very graphic like death threats threats and rape threats for wearing that T-shirt. I I just can't bring myself to watch it. But I can only imagine just how horrific, uh, you know, the propaganda is in that. Have you seen it, Alan? Oh, no. As I said, I try and stay away from these things. It makes my blood boil. (laughs) But you read that guy's book. Yeah, well, somehow when you you have to do it for, for work, it's kind of like it puts you in a different mentality. But I'm not doing that on my downtime and like, you know, investing time into that unless there's a specific payoff for it. Well, you know, one of the things that you mentioned that I thought was really illuminating about this whole thing is that um, that it's not just like obviously with films like Lone Survivor, it's like, OK, I can see the military 
getting in on this and then turning it into some pro-war propaganda and also rewriting the history of how we like fucked up something really badly. But Pitch Perfect 3 is still kind of in my mind that it's like movies that actually have nothing to do with the war or the military. They still somehow find a way to like, and that's like kind of like a kid's movie too, right? I mean, or like teen teen movie or something. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think that's kind of the most effective stuff when it's not obviously blatant, when you're not watching a film about the military, when it's more you're just watching a film about, I don't know, like, uh, I remember one where there's like, you know, two guys who are dealing antiques. I think it's, uh, I forget what it's called, but um, the guys like wander across like a military man and they're like, listen, thank you for your service. You're a hero, etc. And it's just this kind of like, low level kind of propaganda, which I think is more uh, effective. The stuff that, you know, happens on, as I said, at sports games, I think that's more effective than the sort of in your face stuff when you're actually watching a film about the military. Because one thing that really does stand out about the US, there are many things, but the level of military worship and just the intensity with which you see the military in pop culture is completely different. You know, I grew up in the UK you know, maybe I would have seen an army recruiting ad once every month or something on the television. But apart from that, it was just not in my not in my wheelhouse. Like I didn't see a gun until I was about 18 years old, you know, and I, I just can't imagine that being the case in the United States. Yeah. And I think it's important for people to like understand the, how effective this stuff actually is. Um, like, you know, one of the the things that were put was put out by the Pentagon. One of the early forms of like putting propaganda in a popular culture was the during the Vietnam War this this idea that s- soldiers were spit on by anti war protesters when they came home. Um, the army actually created like a comic book that had this scene drawn out in the comic book of a soldier coming home and getting spit on by this like woman with like beads in her hair. Um, in Rambo: First Blood, this is a big part of like the main monologue in the film is. Rambo talking about how he was spit on by anti-war protesters. And it's something that recurs constantly in films about Vietnam is this scene of soldier getting off the plane and there's protesters at the airport ready to spit on them. And it had that became so pervasive that it led to like a mass hallucination that people remember this as a thing that happened during the Vietnam War. And it's in the public consciousness as a thing that happened to Vietnam veterans. It never happened. In fact, there's an academic who went back, studied this and found there is not one documented incident of this ever happening ever. It all was something that came into people's minds from the Pentagon putting out that this was a thing that was happening to try to dissuade soldiers from becoming part of the anti-war movement, which they very much were. I mean, they were leading the anti-war movement. And so even subtle things like one line that Rambo says in the movie sticks. And so if, if those little subtle things have such a massive impact, where now it's the collective memory of the Vietnam War and, and the Vietnam War history that people know, when it was just a propaganda line put out by the Pentagon, um, that kind of puts into perspective how much all this other stuff is impacting people's minds. Absolutely. I mean, you're going to face massive flack if you actually take a stand against war. It happens in the media as well. You know, most of the journalists who oppose the Iraq and Afghanistan wars to begin with, people like Chris Hedges, Phil Donahue, Jesse Ventura, they lost their gigs on television or as, you know, bureau chiefs at the New York Times. That was just a given. Whereas the people who, you know, relentlessly cheered for these campaigns, they were promoted, they failed upwards. In fact, when you look at the people who are like the big stars of 
corporate news now. Most of them were blogging in the early 2000s, talking about how the Iraq war was a great war and it would be over in a few weeks and we'd achieve all our goals. And so, of course, it doesn't matter that they got everything wrong factually. What matters is were they of service to empire? And if that is the case, then you will fail upwards every time. Back to your comment about this kind of low-level conditioning, it's like noise, you know, that's just tacitly, like, accepted by our society and, in fact, embraced and encouraged, um, whether it be sports games or just the export of American, you know, movies and culture around the world really does perpetuate the notion of empire as this benign force and that it's a you know it's necessary and good and when we do things it's with good intentions and that really is due to hollywood because even though a lot of people around the world are also getting u.s corporate dominated news i would say much more get the film and television culture but to your point about the corporate media i guess what shocks me is how far-reaching this is because the corporate media already acts in service to the wars the U.S. wants to sell and you know, manufacturing consent for this global empire. We already see the establishment media rushing to defend the endless war in Afghanistan, put out whatever it can to basically you know, tarnish the withdrawal in Afghanistan. And in fact, because of the barrage of this negative news around what Biden did, his polling is very low now. I would say deliberately because of this, you know, people have associated the end to this war as somehow bad. This is propaganda. So my point is how insidious this is that the corporate media completely dutifully acts in service to the Pentagon in conjunction with Hollywood. I mean, the fact that Pen the Pentagon also has its hands in all of the creative projects that could possibly include this small critique, uh, it essentially forbids it. You know, I mean, that that's just wild to me. Like it already has this huge apparatus. And then it and then it also has this dominant cultural uh, apparatus that really like is so much more far reaching than our media. Yeah. Another thing I write about a lot is uh, the intersection between big media and big government. And, you know, I think a lot of people are vaguely aware of Operation Mockingbird, this 1970s campaign by the CIA, which got hundreds of CIA agents into the biggest newsrooms in America to disseminate pro-war, pro-state propaganda. Um, it's never really been clear if Operation Mockingbird ended but, you know, nowadays with 21st century technology and leaking, there's a lot of documents that continue to be used. And it just seems clear that uh, people who are supposedly in charge or, you know, trusted with holding the national security state or the government more generally, um, holding them up or, you know, you know, criticizing them, critiquing them, scrutinizing them on behalf of the little guy are actually very much in cahoots with them. One example is Ken Delanian. Emails showed that this guy who worked at the Los Angeles Times as their national security reporter was actually sending the CIA his stories to be edited and to be changed completely before they were published. He was working hand in glove with the CIA the whole time. What happened after this scandal came out? Was he purged from journalism forever? Was his name destroyed? No, he's actually failed upwards. He now works on a TV job at NBC News. So he's actually essentially been promoted and he's doing the same thing, national security reporting. And, it's, and it goes on um, in social media as well. One example is Facebook, the dominant social media 
platform in the world with almost 3 billion users is now uh, in a committed uh, partnership with the Atlantic Council, which is NATO's semi-official think tank. If you look at its board, it's a who's who of, uh, you know, Bush era Republicans. There's even no fewer than seven ex-CIA directors on the board of the Atlantic Council. And Facebook is allowing them to curate the reality of almost three million people around the world. The AC is um, essentially uh, changing people's news feeds, promoting trustworthy sources and demoting untrustworthy sources. This when you consider who's doing this, this is tantamount to state censorship, but on a global level, it's not just for Americans. So everyone in Europe and Asia and Africa, Latin America, who are using these resources. So it's just incredible the amount of um, the amount of uh, leverage the national security state has now. It, you know, in the 2000s and perhaps in the 90s, actually more generally, we thought that the internet would set us free and it would be this new peer-to-peer you know, a place where there was no hierarchy and the truth would come out. But unfortunately, it seems like the opposite has happened and that uh, the national security state really has considerable influence on what we see, read and hear wherever we are. Right. And a big part of that, you know, we talked a lot about rewriting the narrative as things were happening, because a lot of this, you know, occurred during the eras of the Afghanistan war being highly active and the Iraq war being a big disaster and Hollywood and TV and and these other mechanisms like uh, news media and things like that were rewriting things real time, as Abby said, and putting out the propaganda to divert away from the reality of what was actually happening. But another angle to this stuff is prepping people psychologically for the next war. And so uh, creating, putting in people's minds who the enemy is to fight next. And so throughout, of course, this is very true in the Call of Duty games, but also in all these films you see, the foreign adversaries are always like Iran, uh, North Korea, uh, Russia, things like that. Um, even though, it, and it's funny because like Russia is still depicted as like the Soviet Union, even though it's like a capitalist country now. Uh, but they still like harken back to like, oh, it's still kind of the Soviet Union, you know, it's or whatever. Um, and so this propagandizing of like prepping people for the next to get on board with the next war that's going to be fought is is really palpable. Like you see it in everything. And that should really disturb people because it's obvious the Pentagon knows where their sites are going to be set next. And it's already putting in people's minds that they should be be okay with it by creating these cartoonish um, and just really distorted versions of the people that they anticipate they'll be fighting at some point soon. But one exception to that, which I find really interesting, is that actually has come into conflict with Hollywood making profits where China isn't really able to be the enemy in a lot of these films. Of course, China is like the main focus of the Pentagon right now. This great power confrontation is in all of the doctrine. I mean, if you're going to West Point right now to be an officer in the military, the primary thing you're learning is preparing for war with China. All of the training that special operations and even regular units are doing right now, it is all geared towards war with China. It's something that the U.S., Uh, officials, the Pentagon, are very aware that this is where we're going to be setting our sights next, you know, the Asia pivot and all that stuff. Um, But because China is such a massive business partner and is such a massive audience 
to see films and things like that, uh, Hollywood has actually had to kind of back off. And that's created some controversy, people being mad that why can't we go after China and things like that? Um, Mike, that's the whole point of why China actually owns the U.S. (laughs) We act uh, in subservience to China because China dictates what we do in Hollywood because they have the ultimate say, don't you get it? Right, wasn't that the... Right, and and like one example is when they remade Red Dawn recently, you know, which is about the Soviet Union invading the United States and then like a guerrilla insurgency in rural America. Um, So they remake it and China was supposed to be the army that invades the United States and then they changed it last minute to North Korea. They're like, oh no, we got to use this other enemy because uh, it'll hurt our profits and it it won't be good for business if we make China the main enemy. So I just find that kind of an interesting twist is that the Pentagon is mainly focused on China right now, but their influence on Hollywood, they kind of have to shy away from that at the moment. Otherwise, it would be too difficult for Hollywood. I don't know if you have thoughts on that or, or agree with that assessment, but it's just something I just thought of. Yeah, I think that assessment sounds reasonable. I mean, China, of course, is, as you said, it's very quickly become uh, the U.S.'s number one enemy because of its enormous and expanding uh, economy, which is now really not under control by the U.S., and they realize if they don't act now economically or, God forbid, militarily, the Chinese cat will be out the bag by 2040, that's for sure. And shows that um, that feature, you know, big CIA or national security agencies often do this sort of heavy lifting to begin with. They prepare the roads. I'm thinking about shows like Homeland or 24. There was a show called The Russians, which was absolutely crazy. And this actually does have demonstrable effects. So for instance, uh, with 24, there was an academic study and it showed um, the scenes of torture, uh, which uh, Jack Ryan inflicted on his victims. Jack Ryan's the main character. Um, It showed uh, the torture. And what happened was that actually, once they were shown these uh, scenes of him torturing other people, Americans were actually more likely to accept torture as a le- as a legitimate form of inquiry and getting information. So actually, nowadays, you know, there's not that enormous public outrage about torturing that there was in the Bush administration days. You know, Obama can just say we tortured some folks, and people most likely just kind of shrug and say, "Well, that's bad," but yeah, whatever. Yeah, and then you see like depictions like if i'm not mistaken the post right and it was like this whole inner drama about the washington post's uh, valiant efforts to publish the torture report even though like if you look at like the broader scheme of things yeah torture is being completely sanitized and like the the majority of americans actually have not taken away the visceral disgust that torture should bring and the recent legacy of the u.s government condoning and authorizing torture so it is funny these kind of biopics of like of like the legacy media basically patting themselves on the back for highlighting things that like are still just very very disturbing issues um but you also made a point about operation mockingbird and it is really crazy because it's like you don't even need operation mockingbird now you know it's like you mentioned the fact that things kind of shifted during like the Iraq war, the Gulf war rather. Um, And 
it, it is totally true. I mean, I obviously wasn't alive during the Vietnam War, but I know that the media was at least a little bit more critical at that time. You know, of course, maybe in part because of how many Americans were dying every day, they would like stop and read the list of all the people who had died that day that were American. Uh, but it is really crazy to actually think back. You know, William Colby, the CIA director at the time, actually admitted that there was like several CIA agents actively working in every single major publication at the time. The New York Times, for example, had about 10 employees um, from 1950 to 1966. And that does carry over. But again, you know, when you have cutouts that essentially do the work on behalf of the CIA, like things that you've covered extensively, like USAID, NED, you almost don't need those covert operations when things are just done completely out in the open. Um, you know, under the cover of spreading democracy or human rights. And then when it comes to the corporate media, you have a lot of these people who just truly believe in the orthodoxy of American exceptionalism. And so it's like you almost don't need to be on the payroll when you just know that you're going to get that access and ride that ladder. Um, I, you know, one of the things that shocked me the most was Iron Man. You know, Iron Man is a really great movie. I really love Iron Man. You know, Tony Stark obviously is such a great character. Um, and he originally was supposed to be fighting against U.S. wars and against empire and against the military industrial complex. I mean, this is totally tragic in re- retrospect because it really could have helped popularize anti-war politics to millions and millions of like young people, Alan. Um, and this is the perfect example of like a storyline totally flipped on its head, completely changing the entire narrative of a film. It's crazy to me that the guy, whoever the screenwriter was, I don't know what the comic was. I'm sure a lot of these Marvel comics and DC comics, I know that, you know, Alan Moore, for example, is like very good politically. And he has very scathing critiques of how his the film adaptations have been on his original storylines. Like he almost hates everything that's been done with his work. But like, I don't know who wrote you know, the Iron Man and shit, but like I, I would imagine that they're not very happy with everything being completely changed and now just like serving the US government. But like you said, there comes a time where they're basically bullied into submission because it's like, okay, you have to have this equipment. But on the other hand, you would think that with a movie that big and with someone who's that famous already, they would hold down the line that they want to put forward. It's tragic all around. Yeah, ultimately, yeah. When you said who, you don't know who wrote Iron Man. That's a Phil Strub production, so we know that he had a pretty big, uh, pretty big hand in writing that. And as you said, the original Iron Man, Tony Stark was this uh, guy trying to use his big manufacturing empire to battle against war profiteers. So he constantly was talking about, you know, I don't want my father's company to be used to be making a military equipment, wow. and he actually like you know, built that suit to try and save people. But it was completely changed when, you know, to the point where pretty much the military became the good guys in that. And suddenly the story was, you know, basically let's go over there and, you know, continue to kill people and bomb people. And that's really important. And, you know, uh, the military did give a lot of money and a lot of, uh, uh, you know, things to Iron Man to make sure that movie was the way they wanted it. I mean, they gave 150 uh, extras. Um, They gave Edwards Air Force Base, which is just north of Los Angeles. That's that's a very common one that um, 
Hollywood uses to simulate desert or Middle Eastern countries. There was a lot of military input into Iron Man. And as you said, the script has just been completely flipped on its head, which, yeah, as you said, it's totally sad. And it's really kind of like, uh, you know, a vision of what our society is right now. You know, it's uh, the military has so much power over the Pent- uh, over the Hollywood uh, studios right now that essentially everything that's coming out is pro-war rather than even just mildly anti-war. Yeah, and when you say they gave 150 extras to the film Iron Man, I mean, that means uniformed military personnel, like to fly the jets, drive the tanks, run around carrying the guns, doing all the, the cool-looking stuff or whatever. They're just active-duty guys that get sent on a real mission, a deployment, to go make this propaganda film for Hollywood to make the military look badass. So the military actually treats it like, okay, we got 150 soldiers to spare to make to put in this film and that's so it makes people want to join the military or think the military is awesome. It's almost like people in are like, you literally have a job as being a propaganda soldier. You're there to be seen on camera to make the army look cool. So, I mean, that's not a small number. I mean, that's like, you know, a battalion size amount of soldiers that whose job it is to just look cool on camera to whitewash the image of the U.S. military. And it's really interesting that Iron Man, you know, if Iron Man was like a Pentagon written film, it's interesting how pro-military industrial complex it, I mean, pro-defense contractor it is in a way. And so it's not even just the, the Pentagon is trying to defend its own image. It's trying to defend the image of the war profiteers that it's giving its contracts to. And so I think that is really interesting. Um, one movie I thought of randomly because it's just such a fun topic, is as Jarhead. I don't know if anyone's seen that film, the 2005 movie. I thought Jarhead no. was a, it's about the Gulf War. And I think it's a really excellent film. The guy, Anthony Swafford, who wrote it, was a Gulf War vet. He actually is an anti-war guy. I mean, I met him. I mean, he was a supporter of Iraq veterans against the war. And the film Jarhead is, ex- it's like, it's this supposed to be this, you think you go in thinking it's going to be this like glorious war movie. And the whole movie is just, the main character, getting to Iraq, they have the highway of death in it. He walks on the highway of death after and looks at all the civilians burned out in the vehicles. And so there's that scene where he's just like in the middle of just complete carnage of just burnt bodies. And then the whole rest of the movie is nothing happening. And then him and all his friends just sitting in a tent, just going nuts, being like, we are so bored. Like guys are getting divorced. Their wives are cheating. It was just like, and and it was a a pretty accurate representation of being in the military of just extreme boredom and stupidity that's punctuated by like one scene where a bunch of artillery shells hit them, a bunch of guys get blown up and the main character pisses his pants. And that's like the only action scene is this really quick moment where a bunch of shit goes wrong really quick and then he urinates himself. And so I thought that was a really powerful film. It was really representative and, and I thought it was extremely good. But the, I, it's funny that they came out with a Jarhead 2 and a Jarhead 3, which are just generic action military films that I doubt Anthony Swafford had anything to do with. But it's like they like there's like a, actually a good anti-war movie about the Gulf War. And so they licensed the name to come out with sequels that actually are just really pro-military. That's interesting. It reminds me of Starship Troopers, this film that's Mm -hmm. deeply anti-war, but it's really kind of subtly anti-war to the point where there's two camps of people who love Starship Troopers, like, you know, (laughs) anti-war activists and people who are really into arthousey films. And then like, you know, braying, mouth-breathing buffoons who just love, you know, the bugs getting shot, essentially, (laughs) who like completely miss the point of the film. And, you know, everybody loves it. In fact, the main character of uh, Starship Troopers, um, 
Johnny Rico, the actor who plays him, Casper Van, I forget his surname, but he said that he was on a flight from Washington to L.A. And the guy who sat beside him was like, I'm a massive fan of Starship Troopers. I love your work. It's my favorite film. And he just wouldn't shut up about it. <laughs> and he said, do you know who the guy was? It was Carl Rove. What? Who said that was his favorite film. Holy shit. That's incredible. And also, that's another film where they made a bunch of sequels that are actually pro-military films, separate from the first one. Oh, man. Yeah, I think uh, Verhoeven was really the mastermind behind that. He said that he couldn't have actually made that, except for the fact that the company that was uh, green-lighted it and was giving them money, and the money got bought over a couple of times, and so there was really no oversight until the final cut of it, where, like, in the end, the whole point of it is that, you know, these guys are brave fighting troops, but in the end, it's like, this is actually a fascist film, and you're not supposed to enjoy this. But well, just so like many- how Obama, like, promoting Parasite, you know, and a lot of these people promoting Squid Game. Like, you you posted, like, I don't know if it was, like, The Economist or whatever, being like, how Squid Game is, like, yeah, means the that the economy is that, or, like, globalization works. It's like, what the fuck? Like, like how in what reality? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like, how does Obama not know that Parasite is, like, a critique on capitalism? Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's so many levels at which, you know, people enjoy some stuff. And Obama's a clever guy. I'm sure he knows what the film is really about. But, you know, I think he's too rich to care now. He's just partying in his mansion with Dwayne Wade and, you know, whoever, you know, the, you know, Hollywood glitterati who come to his uh, parties now. Yeah, now that he has his own Netflix deal, you know, I mean, he's basically has like a production company now. And like, God knows what he he's going to be contributing to Hollywood. I think that that's where he's centered on. I, I just thought of another good show that actually is a cutting critique on just American politics and society was The Boys. Um, you know, the season home one. season one. Yeah, the Homelander character I took as like an Obama type guy. All of this is like going on in the backdrop of the war on terror. And it seems like a lot of Hollywood liberals are vocal now you know, about the Iraq war, I not as vocal about Afghanistan, of course, but we have to go back to 2003, you know, Michael Moore giving that speech at the Oscars about how we should not go into Iraq. And he got booed by liberals who were completely conditioned in the mass psychosis in a post 9-11 world that they actually booed Michael Moore. We can't forget what the reality was at the height of this war fervor, this pro-war fervor. And even though we're talking about a couple films here and there, there isn't really like a standout film that I can even point to in the last 20 years that really was like exposing the lies, you know, the lies that took us to war, the lies about Iraq, the crime of the century. You know, you think that there would be tons of movies about the WMD lies and really scathing critiques of the Bush administration, this criminal cabal that took us to war based on lies that authorized and condoned torture. It's just still like the eternal villains are just Nazis and communists. Like it's just over and over and over again. And then whenever you see like a war movie, it's either about World War II or Vietnam now. And it's like, well, what about the wars that we're in now? (laughs) Like, you know what I mean? Yeah, what was that show we were watching recently that was cool? The first season that had the 
the Channing Tatum looking guy who was just really giant and hairy. What was that show? <laughs> the, it was yeah. like a fantasy. Yeah, it was on Netflix. I forget what it was. Oh, but like the first, what was it? The first season was really good. And then the second season was just like the Soviet Union invades the United States and we're under like Soviet occupation. <laughs> like, wait, what, what happened? I thought this was a good show. <laughs> yeah, but do you know what I mean about it? Like it's all about just like Vietnam still. It's like that's the safe one to talk about or just Nazis. It's like, yeah, we get it. Nazis are bad and fucking there's been a million anti-Nazi movies. Is that like the only thing that we can like I don't I don't know what this the, well, because, an industry on just anti-Nazism and anti-communism. Well World War II, that was the war where it was clear cut, good guys and bad guys. <laughs> Nazis are obviously the bad guys and we're obviously the really good guys. And so of course that's an easy war to focus on because it gets a little more complex as you move on from World War II. I don't know. What do you think, Alan? Yeah, there's no real coverage of Iraq and Afghanistan or America's uh, escapades in the last couple of decades in Hollywood, which is why it's doubly important to support and subscribe to the Empire Files, who make fantastic documentaries about this. Thank you, Alan, for that little plug. You know, I wanted to just lastly say that it's not just the Pentagon's direct influence in the script writing and movie making. It's also actors and directors who have notoriously been blacklisted for their politics, like namely someone like Oliver Stone, a friend of Empire Files, who is a critically acclaimed Academy Award winning director who did several of the movies that we've talked about in terms of the Vietnam War, yet still cannot release his current film projects via U.S. production houses because of his views on, I don't know, the CIA and Russia, I guess. like, And it just really just speaks to what we're saying is that like you have to go along to get along. And if you want to stay in the click, then you have to just like follow the rules. And someone like Oliver Stone, even though he's reached such fame and won so many awards for these films, it's like now that he's doing this political commentary on like you know, challenging the dominant narratives about Russia gate and all and Putin and trying to like normalize someone like Putin, which is something that we need, right? Like the fact that he went and actually interviewed Putin. I mean, we don't even see sit down interviews with like Bashar al-Assad or Vladimir Putin. It's always these cartoonish, villainous depictions of these world leaders that completely paint them in the most absurd cartoonish light possible. But like, really, if you actually hear what these people have to say, you might drastically alter the way that you think about these people, you know, and about the issues that that the corporate media is like depicting. So it's just a whole other level. Sure. When we talk about <clears throat> Hollywood being liberal, we shouldn't mistake that for it being left wing or for being for it being anti-government or anti-war. What it ultimately means is that they are the democratic, you know, they've chosen the democratic party as uh, their clique to follow. And, it, you know, as I said, they can be extremely reactionary on a whole lot of issues. Just look at how they rallied around Woody Allen for years or rallied around Roman Polanski, these guys mm -hmm. accused of absolutely terrible crimes. And, you know, this goes back decades and decades. We can go back to the you know, the 30s and the Red Scare even before that, or the House of Un-American Activities. Charlie Chaplin, who was probably the biggest movie star of the 20th century, most people don't realize it, but he had his career completely destroyed by the national security state. When he was on tour in Europe, he had his visa revoked, and it meant that he could never come back to the United States. He spent 20 years in Switzerland, and at the height of his fame, because he was a socialist, he had his, his career completely destroyed uh, by the government. And people don't even know this story. Yeah, I mean, you know, interesting tidbit is that's the reason that 
sci-fi became like the most progressive genre is because there was purges in Hollywood of every left-wing person, except for in sci-fi for some reason. I don't know why that is. And, you know, that's the reason that Star Trek had the first ever interracial kiss on television is because it was a bunch of communists working in the writer's room. Um, But anyways, that's... uh, that's another story. Alan, we really appreciate all your thoughts and your work on this topic. Uh, could you let everyone know where they could find your work on this and other things and just everything you're doing and where people can find it? Yeah, sure. Well, I appreciate you guys as well. Um, you can find me at Mint Press News. That's where I uh, am the senior staff writer and podcast producer. And I suppose I'm most active on Twitter. I'm on Instagram as well, but Twitter at Alan R. McLeod, A-L-A-N-R-M-A-C-L-E-O-D. I think you are one of the most important media critics out there. Everyone should follow your work, Alan. Thank you for spending time with us today. And, you know, you just wrote uh, two great articles that I haven't seen really anyone else talking about, which is uh, the same group who did the astroturfed protests in Cuba, a CIA-funded operation, is planning another protest soon. Um, I want you to quickly comment on that, as well as the Belarus regime change blueprint. I mean, many I mean, many people have no idea even about this country. Can you give us a quick breakdown about these two stories? And yeah, people can read more about them on Mint Press News. No worries. Yeah. So most people are probably aware that there were big protests, or at least they seemed big, in Cuba in July, which, you know, had a pretty big uh, impact both in and outside the country. They were covered uh, on social media. They trended for more than a day. Even people like Joe Biden started talking about them. You know, if you were going to corporate media, you couldn't really miss this thing that was going on. What happened, though, was uh, I found out that it was actually a small Facebook group called uh, La Vila del Humor, uh, which used to be a group for a town called San Antonio de los Baños in the west of the island. That's where the protests were immediate, uh, were uh, at the start. That's where they started, you know, uh, in a small town. And it was actually a Facebook post saying we should get out on the streets and air our grievances. So I joined that group. I had to pretend I was Cuban and speak in Spanish and such. But what I found out was that it was immediately clear that this group wasn't a group for locals. In fact, most of the people posting there were from Miami. There were plenty of locals still there, but uh, even the administrator of the group was from South Florida. And it basically was a place where Americans went to go and harass and harangue Cubans and cajole them into trying to overthrow their government. And so what they've got planned for November, I think it's the November 20th, is a uh, a big strike and much bigger demonstrations happening all over the country, including in Havana itself. And this is essentially trying to build on what happened in July, which they think was this great success. And they're basically trying to put the heat on the government. And they know that they're going to have the support of the U.S. empire. Talking about the U.S. empire, uh, they certainly have their sights set on other countries as well. One of them is Belarus. Um the country has been ruled by Alexander Lukashenko since uh, 1994, I think. But um, certainly in the last few years, the US government and the EU especially have really seen Belarus as a prize. They want to crack that nut, which has never properly been cracked. If you're unaware, Belarus still has a lot of Soviet-style 
um, structures to it. I think about half of the country is employed directly by the state. The state owns the industry, has a very widespread healthcare system and a very high quality social safety net. So there's a real bonanza there if they could uh, privatize a lot of the businesses in the country. And so what the US and the EU have been doing is trying to find a political figure which they can throw their uh, weight behind. They think Svetlana Tsikhanovskaya is their woman. Uh, I personally think this is a pretty bad choice because when you look at even uh, Western-funded polls taken by agencies which are deeply embedded with the national security state, they find that between 4 and 10% of Belarus actually want her to become president. So we've got this very weird situation where we're getting like this sort of parallel government going in Belarus where Sikhanovskaya is not even in the country, but she's being referred to as this interim leader of Belarus, quite similar to how Juan Guaido is being covered in in the West as this, you know, interim president of Venezuela. So certainly the US empire has got its sights set on Belarus. And we can see that if you read uh, State Department documents, Joe Biden is talking about Belarus a lot. Uh, I'm skeptical whether they can actually crack this nut in the short term, though. Very interesting. Everyone keep an eye out on Alan's work. Alan McLeod, thank you so much for joining us on the Empire Files podcast. It was great to be with you. <laughs> 